0: Go Mighty One, our sacrifice begin. We commence. Riding the dragon to lands of the winter
1: Carry the sword that's alleged but all Roots of the ancients engraved in the The lady, a warrior, is set Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. It's time to party like it's 1974. On this episode of Spellburn, we are going to talk about playing in the sandbox. What is a sandbox campaign and how might it help you up your DCC game? Well, luckily for all you out there in podcast land, we have the author of Dispatches from the Raven Crow King Volume 3, Building the Sandbox with us tonight. To help us explore this topic is the incomparable Raven Crow King himself. I am Judge Jeff, and with us tonight is Judge Jen.
0: Hello, peoples.
1: Judge Julian Hi. And our honorary co-host, Mr. Judge Daniel J. Bishop. Hi. Glad to be here. (laughs) It's great to have you on the show. So we're going to head on over to Tavern Talk.
2: Welcome, friends.
3: Good
1: to
0: see you. I only had one drink to calm my nerves. And give up.
2: A drink of your most expensive.
1: Tavern Talk. Okay, everybody, here we are in Tavern Talk, and uh, this is the segment where we talk about what we've been up to in gaming in this last week or two. Jen, let's start with you.
0: Mine's pretty simple, actually. The last week or two has been no gaming, but plenty of editing and touring inspirational locales.
1: Inspirational locales in the real world or yeah. in like where?
0: Yeah, ac- actually getting away from our desks and walking around places. It was kind of cool. Nice. Most notably was the uh, Jungle Trek in Disney's Animal Kingdom. They just got some really cool facades and just the whole feel of the Asian area really kind of struck me. And we got to feed some giraffes and okapi and, you know, get licked by wild animals. It was all kind of fun. Hmm. Yeah. Some decompression.
1: Sounds nice. Julian, what have you been up to? We had
3: a, uh, you know, a couple of really quick hits. We had Judge John Carnes' uh, finale for his Rogue Trader campaign last week Ooh. when uh, Captain Craxius Bent did decide that, yes, I will destroy the entire galaxy if I don't get my way. So I, I did manage to bluff the Inquisitor and... Uh, It was actually pretty fun. That was a great campaign, so thank you, John. We had uh, good times with that. And then, uh, actually, last night, we ran a Gamer Happy Hour in Minneapolis at Fulton Taproom, and we got 12 people to come down, including uh, Judge Gary and Judge Big John Dahlstrom and John Carnes and a host of others. And uh, as I said in my G-Plus post in our uh, local group, new school, old school, and bad wrong school. So... (laughs) Uh, It was all. It was all good. If you're in the Twin Cities and you want to come to Gamer Happy Hour, uh, get in touch because we we try to do it every couple months. How about you, uh, Judge Daniel?
2: Well, uh, the only real gaming I've had in the last couple of weeks was actually pretty good. It was eight preteens, eleven to twelve, running through Brendan LaSalle's Hole in the Sky. Fun. Oh, it was a it was a blast six-hour session.
1: Had any of them played DCC before?
2: Yeah, my youngest and friends of hers from school. A uh, large group filling our kitchen. Cleaning up the pretzels afterwards was a bit difficult. (laughs) But other than that, everyone had a great time. It was awesome.
0: So you don't make your kids cry?
2: Oh, sometimes, but...
0: (laughs) I think that's like the litmus test now.
2: (laughs) Please don't kill my character, Dad. Please don't kill my character. But that was previously the last two weeks. That
1: was the thing in the chimney. <laughs>
0: uh uh-huh. Yes. I can understand that one.
1: <laughs> All right. Very cool. The last week or two, I've I've actually had quite a bit of gaming. I played in the second or third, now I'm forgetting. No, second session of Chris Wolf's Caverns of Thracia BX game. And what's really kind of cool about this particular dive into Caverns of Thracia is Chris Wolf is trying to run BX basically as written and he's also blogging about it in great detail about his experiences running something in BX and you can read all about our our campaign and his experiences running BX on his blog it's uh, badwrong.fun and there's a uh, pretty fun recaps of the of the sessions we've been playing their third session is actually tonight while we're recording this so i'm i'm missing the third session which is so sad but it's worth it to be here but i feel honored
2: also Aww. I feel honored that you took this time out.
1: Yeah, and uh, shocking news is I'm actually planning on moving to Cleveland. So because I'm planning to do that, I was down in Cleveland kind of scoping out the scene, and I went down to Weird Realms. And if you guys are ever in Cleveland, I highly recommend you go check out Weird Realms. It is an amazing little game shop, and it's run by Beckett Warren, who is uh, on G+, and in all those DCC places. And he's (laughs) running a a, a weekly Thursday game there. And I'm going to be going back there again next month. And I'm going to play in his game. And I'll also run a game when I'm out there. But it's a great shop. And I highly recommend that people check it out. Also was uh, just on an episode of uh, Hobbs and Friends a couple of days ago. Sorry, what's (laughs) that? Uh, Sorry, Julian. (laughs) (laughs) And just the other day, I also did two sessions of playtesting for... Stephen Newton's upcoming Halloween DCC adventure module.
0: Ooh, how did that go?
1: Really fun, really fun. It was pretty brutal, though. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) you guys have probably heard me talk about Volrath, the cleric of Babugbabils, who has been in our campaign since the very first session. Mm
0: -hmm. Volrath died. (gasps) Oh. Yep. Oh, during a play test, even. Stephen oh, that's Newton harsh. Steven Newton killed
1: Vorath. <laughs> you just don't kill my character, Stephen Newton. <laughs> exactly. With, with, with the little uh, death stamp, cause of death is just Stephen Newton.
0: <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're not wrong.
1: <laughs> well, that sounds awesome. It's a really fun adventure. I'm going to be excited to see how how it ends up uh, changing over the next few months, but it's, it's really cool. And it's going to be, it's going to be a great module. So let's head on over in uh, to the summon email section and we can look at some emails.
0: I call upon the flame to summon you.
1: I will deliver the message for me. I came here to give you these facts. Summon email. All right, so here we are in Summon Email, and we've got a nice full mailbag with us today. Uh, Julian, can you go ahead and fish out the first one? Yes, I will. This one is from Chris
3: Zank, and he writes, Hi, Spellburners. I'm a longtime listener of Spellburn and just recently got to start judging DCC with some of my old friends from high school. It's been like a gaming reunion. I've run the group through Neb and Pendlebrook's Perilous Pantry and followed that up with the Frostfang Expedition, both of which are amazing modules that my players and I really enjoyed. My friends have really taken to the ease of playing DCC and the old school feel to it. At the last game session, one of my buddies, who is an avid collector of very early D&D, handed me a copy of X1 The Isle of Dread by David Zeb Cook and Tom Moldvey. He then said that he would love for me to run that adventure someday, as he was never able to play in it. I must admit that I am much more versed in D&D in second edition in each edition afterwards. Well, I won't hold that against you, Chris. (laughs) I did notice that this is a basic edition of the module series. It is also for characters level three to seven, so ideally four of five. I have heard you guys mention before that for D&D modules, just half the level, and that would be the appropriate level for DCC characters. If this is true, then Isle of Dread would be great for level two characters. Is that right? Do you have any tips for me converting the Isle of Dread to DCC? I know my buddy would really enjoy it if I ran it. Love the podcast, and I look forward to your responses through email or on the podcast. Um, I don't think we emailed you, Chris. I'm sorry. So here we are. Chris writes, keep on spell burning." And as he notes, uh, P.S., my group has two wizards and one elf, and they all have patrons. I love it and cannot wait to start using the patrons as part of the campaign. So luckily for Chris, we have Judge Joseph Daniel on with us, and you have (laughs) done some converting of uh, D&D to DCC, haven't you? I don't know which edition stuff exactly. So what would you say?
2: Well, I've converted, officially I've converted third edition and I've converted fourth edition unofficially i've converted any edition so hmm. and non-dcc i've converted gamma world and uh anything really i don't think it's difficult to do in this particular case if he has angels demons, and beings between hash loose has a lot of dinosaur stats there are a lot of dinosaur stats in dam number one in the mysterious valley so those things can be scooped directly for x1 and if not it's really not that hard to convert
1: yeah, I would agree. I think the the idea that it's for just divide the level in half and that's the, the power level is pretty accurate. I would still say that hit points tend to be pretty bloated in most editions of D&D. So I think even so, I, I would usually lower the hit points a little bit, but otherwise I would just run it as printed.
0: My only chime in on this one would be to check the G plus communities and see if anyone else has already done this. Maybe they can give you some pointers or just pass over their notes for the conversion.
3: Hmm,
2: awesome. Yeah, that's a great idea.
0: I, I'm all about shortcuts at this stage, man.
2: <laughs> nice. If you look at my blog at Raven Crow King's Nest, and just do a search for conversions, there are notes and, and how, how to do them, basically. It's not hard
1: at all. Oh, perfect.
0: And that's why we have you. <laughs> Yay.
1: And we can even <laughs> link to your conversions page on your blog in our show notes.
3: Yes. yes feel free yep will
1: do fancy very cool well jen it looks like there's another letter in our mailbag that looks kind of similar to the last one
0: Hmm. yeah it could be because it's also from chris zank hmm. so guys here's another question My players earned enough experience during the first adventure at level 1, but not enough to make level 2. Now I'm planning on running shadows under Devil's Reef, and I know that if they survive, they'll level their characters about two-thirds of the way through the adventure. So, how do you do that? Just take away game time and let them level? That seems strange, and I don't want to lose valuable game time. I have all their characters at this time, so it makes the most sense that I should level them with level two characters and have them roll their hit points. I guess that wouldn't be so bad. Here's my question. How do you spell burners handle leveling in the midst of a module, game-wise and story-wise? Any advice is appreciated. Hmm. I'm not sure that most of you guys do that. I do. You do?
2: I do. Every time you hit that experience point, you level. And um, if you are a wizard or an elf, the rules say that you don't automatically gain your spells, so it's not that big of a deal. If you're a cleric, then your god gives you your spells, so it's not that big of a deal. I don't know. I don't think it actually gets in the way of the fiction. You've just become more confident as a warrior, more confident as a thief, and um, yeah.
0: So their spell you would let them gain that through some fashion at the end of the module?
2: No. if Okay, let's say that you are a cleric, right? So if you're a cleric, you're getting your spell directly from your god, Zap. And probably your god wants something for it. Okay. If you are a wizard, you need to spend time to learn that spell. You kind of have an idea of what you might be able to learn, but you don't learn it until you spend at least a week per spell level. And then there's a check. So the rules, as far as I'm concerned, the rules already take that into account. I don't think there's any reason to not let them get the other bonuses. I mean, a plus one to a saving throw, so what?
0: That's true. I mean, outside of gaining the extra hit points, there's not a huge differential there.
2: That's not really that different from what happens in the fiction that the game is based on, you know?
1: Good Hmm. point. Hmm. I agree. I don't feel like it creates any kind of a hole in the storyline to have your characters level up in that way. I certainly wouldn't stop mid-game like I wouldn't be awarding XP at the end of each encounter and then if somebody in the middle of a session levels up I wouldn't I would do it at the end of the game that day at least the end of that session but it doesn't bother me that you're still the characters are still in the midst of an adventure that doesn't stress me out at all I feel like the only time where it ever seems like it strains the fiction is when you're leveling from zero to one, because there is such a leap in power, especially with wizards. Right. And, and especially because suddenly you're rolling like four new languages and all. Yeah. There, there, there are lots of things that happen when you level up from zero to one, where it does kind of make it make more sense for a fair amount of time to pass between those levels in the fiction. So if you're an adventuring party with a bunch of second, third and fourth level characters, and you have people playing zero level characters and leveling them up, That one might strain the fiction a little bit, but also, like, who cares, you know? I'm not personally too hung up on that.
0: I will add that it doesn't really take away from game time. If it takes them three minutes to transfer the new saves and, you know, modifiers to their sheet, Um, it's not like they're spending half a game shopping.
2: No, that's Mm. true. Mm. So I
0: I don't think there's a whole lot of game time.
2: Even if you're going from zero to one, that wizard does not get his spells immediately. If you're playing like sailors and you happen to find a magic ring that allows you to cast spells, the dire rolling changes. But that's it.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
3: Hmm. True. I, I will say that um you're all wrong. <laughs> 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 well, honestly, like, why would you give any XP except at the end of the adventure? I mean, it's not, I don't actually have any religious problem with, like, doing in the middle if that's what you really want to do. But why would you give any XP until the end of the whole shooting match? I don't know. I don't know.
1: So I'm sorry, Julian, do you mean at the end of the session or at the end of the adventure? Because you're saying adventure. Is well, it-
3: I guess for me, it's usually the same thing. I almost okay. always run one, one session. But uh, if it's
1: not... Because what if what if you have a four session adventure? Oh right, no, I have I have strung
3: a couple out like um, escape of the sea, escape from the sea queen, and jewel of the carnifex. We ran in two sessions, and in those cases, I did it at the end of the second one. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't give out XP until the end. I mean, man, don't start milking me for XP in the middle of a freaking life and death. You know that's not going to go well. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> milking you for XP doesn't happen inside the fiction of the game. Right? That's not part of the fiction of the game. Right. (laughs) That's something that happens with the table. And Mm, it's during the game, you get that XP by encounter. Your character is hiding back in the uh, foyer while everyone else has gone forward, does not get that XP. There's a value to giving XP as it occurs because
1: it reinforces... That character getting involved. Yeah. That's great. And I think it's great that we're chatting about XP because that seems to uh, tie in nicely to this next message that we're going to look at here from uh, Mike P. And it says, Hey, all, here's a request to pick your brains around a method that I've been using to give out XP. My dice have been failing me regularly when running funnels. The traps all seem to work fine, but the monsters just aren't willing to do the work for which they were hired. <laughs> it also doesn't help that I have smart players. As a result, my PC body count for starter games ends up pretty low. This means that my players will often start with a stable of two to three extra characters, and if they want, I allow them to bring extra characters with them on later adventures. Most of the people I play with prefer not to to have to manage too much of their own paperwork, and having a pile of first-level characters immediately after the funnel would bog them down after a while. So to mitigate the bloat, I've been giving the XP to the players equal to what a single character would have earned for that session at which point they can spread the points out to all the characters or just beef up their favorites. Also, this only applies if the player brings multiple characters to the table, otherwise their single character gets all the XP. As a judge, I know that I have liberties with the rules, but I'm trying to be conscious of what is fair for my table. What I want to know is, if you were all at the table with this as a standard, would you feel okay to you as players? What would you all change? Thanks in advance. I really enjoy the show. The great resource that it is. Keep up the good work, judges. Mike P. So, yeah. What do you think about that, Mr. Bishop?
2: I think that's brilliant. That's perfectly fine as far as I'm concerned. Great. Julian?
3: I, I apologize for not including this in our house rule episode because it's kind of a, a decent house rule. It's kind of a good house rule. Yeah, it's a great house rule. At first, when I read this, I thought to myself, it doesn't support the fiction to me. But then when I considered it more, I thought about the penguin. What? That is the, okay. the Batman supervillain. <laughs> the Batman super, you know the guy with the fat guy with the umbrella and stuff and the long okay. nose. And, and
1: and then I thought, you notice how not the albino ones in the mountains of madness? No.
2: No, wait, wait, wait. Is this uh Burgess Meredith or Danny DeVito? Oh Burgess Meredith, of course. Okay.
3: Well, no, really the <laughs> comics. The comics, the Dick Sprang penguin, right? Okay. So he's you know how he's like a 20th level weird penguin fetishist guy, but he has these mooks around. He always has these dudes in striped shirts and bowler hats and with umbrellas or something. And Robin punches these guys out with one shot. And the reason is because the penguin is sucking up all their XP right? So they're all going on adventures and earning XP, but all of it is be the, the Penguin's player is funneling it all to the Penguin, so these other guys have been zero level for like, you know, 50 adventures or something. And anyway, I thought that it does sort of support the fiction, that there are a lot of archetypes where there are very powerful guys who are surrounded by mooks all the time,
2: and that's mm-hmm. what you could end up with.
1: Hmm. I like it.
2: It's also an incentive to not be surrounded by mooks all the time. <laughs> that is true. Or to be
3: certain, I, I don't know. Human shields as I call them.
2: Read <laughs> I mean, shields.
1: I like it. You know, because also in the Caverns of Thracia game that I'm playing right now, I had two characters to start with, and they were okay, but I ended up hiring this Hireling, uh, and this Hireling's name is Judith Straitjacket, and I did not come up with the name. The, the name was given to <laughs> her character. But Judith Straightjacket, our little hireling, has been way more useful than either of my two PCs. <laughs> so if I were playing with this house rule, I would completely be leveling up Judith Straightjacket and be making her my new character because Judith Straightjacket is way better than my two characters. Although one of them is now dead, but.
0: Hmm. Yes.
1: Lerizzo, rest in peace. Well, that does make it easier for her to be better than them. That's true. That's true. Okay, I feel like we have uh, done a good job getting through a few of these emails. The bag's a little bit lighter, but it's still pretty darn full. But let's head on over to Mercurial Magic, where we can talk about the meat of this episode. All my life, I've studied the Black Ops.
3: She was a, a kind of magician.
1: Mercurial Magic. So here we are in Mercurial Magic. And we're here to talk about the sandbox and sandbox gaming. So I guess the first thing that I want to chat about is what the heck is a sandbox and what is sandbox gaming? Because I I know that there was a point in my gaming career, uh, especially when I first started getting interested in the OSR, where suddenly I was seeing the word sandbox thrown around a lot and I, I, I had no idea what it meant. And I'm like Googling it, trying to figure out like what the heck these people are talking about. So on the off chance that you're somebody who's listening who doesn't know what Uh, a sandbox game is. Mr. Bishop, would you feel comfortable letting us know what a sandbox game is?
2: I would absolutely. If you are as old as I am, a sandbox game is what we used to just call a game. And (laughs) this is before Dragonlance and things like that. It was a world in which things happened, but in which you were not expected necessarily to do the things that the judge wanted you to do. So You would have opportunities that would arise that would not necessarily be there forever. Events would still occur, but it wasn't a story that you were intended to follow. There were all kinds of stories happening in the world, and what was interesting to you is what your characters followed. Does that make
1: sense? That's very well put. It does. I like that.
3: The Judges Guild stuff seems to be really of that ilk, more than the TSR stuff in a way. Oh, definitely. Definitely. The, they are always like this. Takes place in hex, blah blah blah, of the thing, mm-hmm. and you get a sense that there's this giant, you know, map, and the caverns of Thracia are somewhere on the map. And if your guys really wanted, they could find the thieves' fortress of badassery or whatever, and <laughs> all that stuff. <laughs> you know, more connected and but the, but has a very sandboxy feel. Where whereas it's I don't know some of the TSR stuff, it you know I was never really felt like the Lenador Isles in uh, you know. I don't know. I never really could place all that stuff. I know Greyhawk's out there, but anyway.
2: Well, it depends upon what area you're looking at and who the writer was. I mean, if you consider something like the Keep on the Borderlands, or if you consider something like the Village of Homlet, that was a start for a sandbox in which your characters could go anywhere. You didn't have to fight the Temple of Elemental Evil. You didn't have to destroy the Caves of Chaos. I had characters who turned around and destroyed the keep.
1: hmm Yes. Whoopsie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Oopsie doodles. Yeah, there was no whoopsie involved. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but it, it certainly seems like the the spirit of the Judges Guild Wilderlands campaign setting is explore this, change it, make it your own, adopt what you like, insert your characters into this, and completely change it. But that doesn't feel like that's this necessarily the spirit of Dragonlance or the Forgotten Realms or some of these other kind of... Oh, no,
2: no, 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 no. Dragonlance, definitely not. And Forgotten Realms, by the time you get it, Dragonlance has already infected the idea of what TSR is trying to do. And the Judges Guild stuff, when you look at that, like Caverns of Thracia that you're playing through, right, that is absolutely fantastic. What a wonderful piece of work. Mm -hmm. You can delve lightly into it or you can delve deeply into it. yeah It supports any kind of play you want to do if you want a story, there are stories there. If you want to just do an exploration,
1: there's exploration there.
2: It's almost a uh, perfect example of what a sandbox in miniature could be.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree completely. And a lot of it is there's so much randomness in it, too, because, you know, the, the way in which we approached the caverns of Thracia in our very first session Uh, I was reading Chris's blog entry about it, and there was a table he needed to roll on to see if there were going to be null guards at this one particular section, and there were. And because there were null guards at that location by a random die roll, it completely changed how we entered the caverns and the direction in which we went. But if he had made a different roll and there hadn't been guards there, we would have entered in a completely different way and had a very different adventure. So it's clearly, I feel like the sandbox is very much the antidote or the opposite of the railroad, because really any, anything can happen. Yeah. And it encourages that style of play.
0: It strikes me as a very open hex crawl,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where, you know, there's a lot of if-thens.
1: hmm mm, I like that. So Dungeon Crawl Classics as a system for a hex crawl, um, or not as, I'm sorry, not a hex crawl, as a system for a sandbox, is Dungeon Crawl Classics... Better suited for sandbox gaming than other o s r or fantasy role playing games is it harder to kind of fit with d c c or is it kind of no better or no worse than any other system for this style of gaming
2: um sandboxing or the 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 tools you need to sandbox are built into uh d c c there are you know your wizard has to go on a quest to find the missing piece for his spell. You are told quest for it for the things that you want. Your cleric has disapproval and has to come up with a quest to heal the sick of his own device. You know, that's all almost requires you to have a sandbox in order to do it.
0: And there are other modules that are written that have these open-ended conclusions. You know, hey, if they liked this, maybe they should go try to find this other NPC that escaped or whatnot. And that's actually what I ran with during my campaign.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think those are all great points. I would also add that in in the core book, you know, you've got these people like Sezrakhan and Babugbubils and the King of Elfland. And here you've got these characters that are being introduced within the fiction of the core game. And certainly you don't need to use these people if you don't want to. You can have a game where these characters don't exist. But because they're in the core book, many people who played Dungeon Call Classics use them. But what I love about the way the game is written is it doesn't necessarily tell you exactly who or what Sezra Khan Babugabills or um, the King of Elfland are or exactly what they do or what their roles in the world are. So they give you just enough information to have these really flavorful, interesting presences in your games, but it's entirely up to both you and your players to figure out who these things are and the kind of roles they play in your world, which feels very sandbox to me.
2: Even if you look at the uh, advice about making your world small, right? In the core book, that is almost the advice of how to build a sandbox, right? The players, if they want to learn about the world, have to explore it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And speaking of creating your own sandbox, I feel like if I were a... New judge, and I was inspired by this episode. I'm, I'm, I've listened up until this point, and I'm like, Yes, I'm going to create a sandbox and I'm going to map out every single hex, include what's in every single hex, and come up with an adventure for every single thing. I feel like it would be really easy to over prepare uh-huh. and <laughs> overburden yourself. Exactly. It's a very natural impulse. So I'm curious do you guys have any uh, experience with Letting that go or using tools to allow yourself to not do that? Or I don't know. What, what, what do you guys think?
0: I totally overprepared. Yeah. I, and maybe a fourth of it was used.
1: I was going to ask you <laughs> what, what percentage of it was used. <laughs> exactly. And
0: then we get what I brought to GaryCon, which was a couple of scribbled notes with hit points. And OK, go. Yeah. Just establish the setting. Really, that's all you need. That's all you need Mm -hmm. to give your characters is a setting and maybe two or three options of something to do.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And if they go after option C first, by the time they get back, it might be too late to go after option A. And then you Mm -hmm. have the consequences that build in and continue building that world.
1: Yeah. What do you guys think? You can do
3: a lot of trickery, too. Um, For instance... Should you start out in the town of Snake Deep and you are pretty sure you can lure the characters into the abandoned keep on the outskirts of town, but once the pizza starts uh, being gobbled and the beer starts flowing, then they decide that they want to go, you know, steal something from the nobleman instead and ignore the abandoned keep. And you put this work into the abandoned keep. The abandoned keep is still, first of all, it's still there and they might still go there five sessions later, but... You know, a year later, they may be in a different campaign, it's still there to use. And, or if three sessions later they're in a new town, you they never went in, so you can have an abandoned keep outside the new town or whatever. Like, nothing ever is thrown away, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't really. Uh, there's no over prepared. It's just a question of you know anything they never saw the inside of, and sometimes even stuff they did see the inside of can always be used again, reskinned and repainted and so on. So I think the sandbox is is always a thing about prepare what you need and always and build out in the direction the characters are interested in going. But even if there's some missteps, nothing's ever wasted.
1: And maybe one thing that I would suggest that you guys may or may not agree with, and I'd be curious to see what you guys think about this, is certainly you can prepare very specific locations on your map, but I also think you can prepare things that you can put wherever you want at the moment it's it's appropriate. Like maybe you prepare something that's not specifically placed on your map yet, but you know your players are moving in this direction, so and they've rolled a random encounter, so now you're placing this like little temple that you had prepared on the side, or you're placing this little tomb that you had prepared on the side. And this thing that you have ready is now being put in this new hex, because this is the hex they're in when they rolled the random encounter or something. Do you guys feel like that's cheating or is that completely in the spirit of the sandbox?
2: As a random encounter, that's perfectly fine. Cool. Um, I would say of the other things you want to do are as you're devising your areas, you're devising them in a general sense, and you're doing this specific work as you need it so that you're not overworking yourself. Mm-hmm. As you're doing that, even that general work, you're trying to build up connections between those areas so that they might not explore all of the 13 areas that you're looking at. But if they explore area one, it might say, hey, there's something here in area five. Here's a treasure map for area seven. Here's... Um, some riddle that might answer something in area eight and that allows you to create something where the players are constantly being referred back and lured back to the areas that you're creating yeah i mean I, i think that's important actually what's probably the most important thing to do is to create areas where the players can get information to make decisions from if you look at the ce series that was a theme that comes up again and again here's a place where the characters can ask questions. And you need those built into your campaign so that the characters can actually be directed towards the things that they're interested in.
1: When you are initially setting up your sandbox, are you envisioning some kind of end game when you first start? Or are you just kind of creating an open setting and letting them explore it however they want with absolutely no idea about where it's going to go?
2: I think that what you want to do is somewhere near the beginning. Have some idea of what kind of end that you might have. Mm-hmm. A magic item that is amazing and it's been lost forever. Mm-hmm. Like something like the Tomb of Horrors that nobody can survive. <laughs> where it's uh, like uh, some rumors that there is a group of giants that worship a headless titan out in the desert. In case you want to bring a Harley-Stroll module in at the end. <laughs> and depending upon how the game goes, you then tailor the end game to what the characters want. The characters kind of pick the end game Mm -hmm. or the players pick the end game based upon just like we do in our lives, right? We decide what gives our lives meaning as a player. You decide what gives your character's lives meaning.
1: And I forget if I read this in your book or if I read this somewhere else, but I heard something I really liked, which was envision what would happen in the world if the characters weren't there. And you can have that in mind when you're creating your sandbox as a way of envisioning what you're building up towards or not.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the things I did when I first started dipping my toe in the sandbox was created a couple of creatures and kind of threw them out there as monsters and took note of which ones really bugged and unsettled the players most. And then I made those recurring monsters. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's great. And I think one of the things that's really helpful in creating a good sandbox is having helpful tools. Do you guys have any kind of specific books you would recommend or online resources? I know I've got quite a few.
0: For sandboxing? Yeah.
1: Um, I, I say just steal stuff. You know, like that's why yeah. I think other hex crawls like Carcosa... The Wilderlands of High Fantasy, Swordfish Islands, uh, those are all great places to just totally lift things from. And in addition to that, I also think that any kind of a tool that allows you, that that helps you randomly generate things like Vornheim, if you're going to have a city in your sandbox, or something like Tome of Adventure Design, that's also helpful. And uh, Mr. Daniel J. Bishop here also has a series of books called Campaign Elements, and they are fantastic Little settings and uh, environments and beings that very easily would fit into a sandbox.
0: Absolutely, and if you find any pre-existing modules with even an encounter that you really like, yeah, grab it. Totally. Like when uh, when they put out the additional content for Sailors of the Stellar Sea, I really wanted to put that in there because I knew that some of the players that originally went through that module would recognize some of the elements in there and kind of tie it in with the existing storyline.
1: Right on. Jen, when you were creating your sandbox, were you mostly inserting pre-existing adventure modules into it? Were you coming up with your own stuff? Was it kind of a mix of A and B?
0: It started out with me just trying to string some modules together because I'd never judged before Mm -hmm. and creating kind of an ongoing storyline within it kind of grew by itself especially thanks to Stephen newton's modules you know attack of the frogs and then there are some things within larvic the haunting of larvic island
2: great module
0: yes larvic is, is there are some really nice elements within that so i actually kind of blended those in with that additional module content from sailors the first time i did any of this cool and it kind of helped build the continuing storyline because recurring things help cement things in players' brains, especially when you have like different players from year to year.
2: It gives you a uh, a benefit for investment too, right? You get an immediate return yes. because you invested in learning uh, like that campaign setting, and then what you've learned actually comes back and becomes valuable.
0: Exactly.
3: Um, I would just say tools wise to kind of go a different direction with that communication and listening are the biggest tools in that kind of campaign i think you know being able to something i only got good at later in life was just being able to really be kind of meta with players and say yeah, you know i want you to have fun i mean i want to do this thing that is going to be the most fun for us so if you go over here it's probably going to be like something like this If you go over here, it'd be more like this. You know, this would be more exploring (laughs) or if you want to really do a dungeon crawl, you know, there's some stuff over here you could do and just lay it out for people and and let them have a shot at doing what they the kind of stuff they want to do. And then, of course, you know, actually, sometimes they're arguing at the table about what they should do next and just let them work (laughs) it out. You know, you can actually just let them in character and or out of character kind of a mix. Just hash that out together and then make those deadly mistakes. I mean, make those great decisions that uh, (laughs) make the
1: campaign fun. Totally, I agree. Does anybody else have any other tools they'd like to recommend before we move on to the next part?
2: I think you can take anything and take elements from Mm -hmm. it. If you even take an adventure that was written like Dragonlance, where there is a point A to point B or one of these adventure path modules or something like that, right? As long as you as the judge do not try to drive to the end that the author thought was going to happen, you can make it fit into that setting. Oh, totally. Some of them require more work than others, but...
1: But yeah, you can always take locations, you can always take NPCs, you can always take monsters and items. There's there's lots of stuff you can pilfer from even the railroadiest of adventures. Yep. <laughs> Steal the hell out of things. So how important is a steady home base when you're creating a sandbox? Mm,
0: I don't know. They- None. Mm.
1: Not at all? Uh, I mean, you know. We,
0: as players, we always want a place that feels safe, but... There are times where that just isn't possible.
3: Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a great choice for players. Do you? It depends on the players. Yeah, do you want a central home base or do you want to travel around and, you know, kind of live that mercenary lifestyle? I mean, either one is, is a great choice. They all have their pros and cons.
2: If you have persistent locations in the game, the players
1: can choose a home base or they can choose to never have a home base. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And without having a home base, I'm curious for those of you guys who've run sandboxes before, do you make sure that you end sessions in a home base or in kind of a safe place, especially if you've got like a rotating cast of players? How important is it that each session ends in civilization? Uh, Because if it's going to be ending in the middle of kind of a perilous environment, how do you kind of deal with the fact that the next session you guys might have a different group of players there?
2: Well, that's actually a tough question. If you do not have a rotating cast, then it doesn't matter where you end the session. Yeah. If you have a rotating cast, I have found at times that allowing it to end in a dangerous situation has caused some difficulty. Mm -hmm. That difficulty I have dealt with sometimes by saying, and now we will look over here,
1: to these (laughs) other group of characters
2: and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the real answer is, Something happened to those other characters who couldn't make it, and they will have to roll on the table when they get back to find out what it was. Yeah.
0: Hmm. I like that.
2: There's an adventure that has... Oh, is it uh, Red and Pleasant Land? No, it's not. Some adventure had a thing where people step into Elfland for a little while, and you roll on a table to see why your character wasn't there. I have used things like that. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Here are the consequences of your character not having been there. You're abducted by the King of Elfland, and made to do this. That's
1: cool. Mm. And I think in general, having little tables like that around, if you find like kind of a cool, fun table that you think might be an interesting thing to incorporate into your game, it's just kind of a fun thing to just kind of like make a note of and set to the side because you never know when you'll find a, a good use for that one. It doesn't work
3: for being like in the midst of a combat if you had to actually end your a session there and resume the next time. But, you know, almost I mean, it sounds funny and kind of stupid, but almost any break where, with a missing character in the next session can be explained by that person was really sick, so they did an adventure. I mean, if you did come down with pneumonia or something and you could barely move, you might have to sit in the, you know, hidden room in the dungeon and wait while the other people explored, right? Yeah. I mean, so, and I've used that a few times, especially recently, and it works just fine honestly, I don't even care anymore if people are missed a session and that character's just gone and they reappeared next time. I and mean, they were in the background, you know, doing some administrivia while the other guys were out exploring and stuff. And
1: uh, yeah, I kind of agree. I feel like from especially, if, you know, with, with a lot of people I've been playing with, especially out here in New York, where a lot of us have very busy schedules and it's difficult for everybody to make it each time. So we invite more people than we know are actually going to come. And it's going to be a completely different group every single time. I think I just kind of embrace the sense that like there is a multiverse with parallel dimensions. <laughs> and with each session, we just slide over into a slightly parallel dimension where it turns out that, you know, Jack wasn't adventuring with us anymore. And now we've got Jill instead. You know, it's just easier to manage that and not think about it too hard.
2: Well, I know when they were doing the uh, West Marches campaign... That one of the things that they had suggested about that was if you know that at the end of that session, if you are not in a safe place and you know what time the session ends, you're going to have to roll on the table. The players suddenly are motivated oh. to get to a safe
1: place before the session ends. <laughs> hmm. That is uh, very rule and I love it. <laughs> I love
2: it.
3: That's a great, that's an excellent way to do it.
2: That's not my idea. That was in the uh, West Marches campaign, which uh, there's blog posts around somewhere. Oh, that's great. I thought so.
1: So another great opportunity that exists with a sandbox campaign is the ability to keep it changing and dynamic. So you cleared out the Keep on the Borderlands or you cleared out the, I don't know, the Tomb of Horrors or whatever. And then you go off and you abandon this dungeon And as you guys continue exploring, maybe you guys make it your home base or maybe something else makes it their home base. Or you leave town and you come back to town and town is suddenly very different because something has happened. Or the world is changing because you've now brought in all this treasure into your town and now your town is going mad with all the money that's flowing through its veins. How much work do you guys put into kind of keeping the world changing and dynamic?
2: I think that's actually important. I I don't think you need a lot of work but I do think that you need to think about it. Jen or Julian?
1: Yeah, I would
3: say, you know, for me, it's mostly immediate environs usually, but I like to do a little bit of that, usually with the sort of political scene or maybe with, the you know, important uh, cast of character, NPC type guys, just to kind of keep stuff moving and build some uh, persistent development, NPC type stuff. It can be also kind of cool if they were, you know, six months ago, had an adventure in the abandoned keep, and then they find out one of their adversaries moved into that place after they had cleared it out or something. For Even long distance, they sort of hear that, you know. So there's all kinds of stuff like that that can happen. That stuff is great because it really builds that sense. You know, you learn this as a writer, and then you start paying attention to how authors do it. And the tiniest little resonant details can stand in for volumes and volumes of world-building, you know? Yep. Yeah. Just the, yes. So sometimes just that little suggestion looms really bigger than than what it was.
1: Something that I'm reading right now that really kind of inspires me along this particular line is I'm currently reading the collection Conan the Freebooter, and it's one of those paperback collections from the 70s where it's got Robert E. Howard stuff, but it's also got Elsberg de Camp rewriting old Conan stories or other stories and calling hmm. them Conan. And usually his rewrites are, are dreadful, but there's, there's <laughs> one in particular that, I'm re- that, that I that just, just just finished reading. It was Elsberg de Camp taking one of uh, Robert E. Howard's unfinished like Asian adventures and turning it into a Conan story. And it's actually surprisingly good. And there's this thing in it where there's like this mad King and it got me thinking about how fun it would be in a sandbox environment to maybe have like a mad King. And in the early sessions, he's just kind of coming up with like strange new rules and new laws that he's getting frustrated by. But like, as your campaign is progressing, the King's madness is also progressing and it's becoming less and less comical and more and more kind of terrifying. Mm. So I think, if you can introduce something from the very beginning where you're foreshadowing that this thing may be turning into something, it's a great opportunity for your characters to respond to it or not respond to it and see what happens in the world because of the response or non-response.
2: Does the Mad King tweet a lot?
1: <laughs> yeah. Too soon, man. Too soon.
2: <laughs> the important thing is if the player's response is to move to the next country over, that's a legitimate response in the game.
1: <laughs>
0: Okay, so getting back to your question, Jeff, um, I I admit that I have not kept such a huge thumb on this issue. Most of my experience in this particular dynamic is as a player, because Bob has run numerous homebrew worlds, uh, usually with AD&D, but... You just get that impending sense of something is going to happen if we don't get over here by X time. And sure enough, we dallied around somewhere. And oh, over in the next city that was our home base, it kind of isn't anymore. Uh,
1: exactly. The Mad King so, now has heads on stakes all around the city wall. Right.
0: Right, and I guess my way of keeping the world changing is to throw another um, module that we're playtesting into the mix.
1: <laughs> that <laughs>
0: that uh, just kind of uproots everything.
2: I'm also going to suggest that you don't just think about the Mad King, but if you go back to the same inn, well, the innkeeper, the the woman who is waiting tables now has gotten married. Uh, a few times later, she's pregnant. Uh, there might be children involved. There might be he might sell the inn. Little things in people's lives are just as important. Oh, that's great.
0: That's beautiful. And
2: one of the best tools for helping to come up with that that I know of is in the first edition AD&D Oriental Adventures. They came up with tables for Ah. weekly, monthly, and yearly events, which are setting-specific, but they're generic enough that you can easily tweak them to your own game. So you can determine things that might happen ahead of time and then introduce them as they occur through play.
0: So I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't at least give a a mild plug to the Adventurer's Almanac in cases like these.
2: (laughs) That's a good resource. Ah, yes. Okay. That's a great suggestion. I'm sure Michael Curtis will appreciate the plug, too, as the author of that tome. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. If we're going to talk about Adventurer's Almanac, I should also say GM Gems. Yeah. Also published by Goodman Games. Its second printing was converted to Dungeon Crawl Classics. Completely usable. And who did the conversion on that?
0: Oh.
2: I don't know. Somebody did the conversion on that. Oh. Possibly somebody on this podcast.
0: (laughs) Some guy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, that would be a fantastic resource at this point. When I was first looking into it, it was still for, you know, system neutral or previous editions of things. So the, the GM Gems was a great idea. But now that I know it's actually DCC- specific or geared that will be a wonderful thing to look at when i get back behind the screen
1: it is and you should that's a good point and so is like dungeon alphabet and monster alphabet but specifically mm-hmm. the dungeon alphabet's a great resource as well you can roll up some kind of fun altars and fun little things to throw into your hexes
0: you know if you can't find anything that's already been
1: done yeah why With not a random esoteric creature generator remains a go-to absolutely all of these are really great suggestions So, guys, I think this has been a really fantastic conversation. I I feel like we've really um, done a great job of exploring this topic. So, Mr. Daniel J. Bishop, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been a lot of fun. Thank
2: you for making the mistake of having me back.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. And if you would like to reach out to Spillburn, you can email us at Uh Please go to iTunes, leave us reviews. You can uh, look at each of us up on the Twitters and the G Pluses. Uh, although Burnick's not really on the Twitters or the Facebooks, but he's on the G Pluses. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, everybody, thanks for listening. Have a good night. And have a good night also. Game TF on. <laughs> Have a good night, guys. You've been listening to Spellbird. Copyright 2017. Our theme song has been graciously provided by Glitter Wizard. Learn more at glitterwizard.bandcamp.com This has been a Hectophonic Production.